0: Hey everyone, quick announcement. If you want to support this podcast, check out my website, useconpodcast.com. There you'll find a link to my Patreon as well as some other interesting things, like the list of books and resources I use in putting each show together. Some other ways you can support this project are by subscribing to the show, writing reviews, or sharing the podcast on social media. One last thing, make sure you follow at useconpodcast on Twitter. Alright, now for the history of U.S. economics. In the years following the Revolutionary War, it fell upon the Founding Fathers to determine which direction to steer the economy. By 1783, Washington had defeated the British at Yorktown, the Congress was submerged in millions of dollars of war debt, and the nation had tried and failed at establishing its first central bank. Shortly after this period, luminaries like Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson sparred over the stance the central government should take on the economy. Hamilton won that debate, and the nation made its second attempt at a national bank, which is the subject of this episode. In this episode, we'll also assess the American economy following the war, then get into Hamilton's brilliant plan to handle the federal debt without having to actually pay a cent for it. We'll dive into the first bank of the US, which confusingly was the nation's second attempt at a national bank following Robert Morris's now defunct Bank of North America, which fell apart in 1783. And we'll wrap up with the clever and mortally flawed monetary policy of bimetallic coinage. Once the war was over, international trade, especially with the British, quickly resumed. Quick to capitalize on the demand for goods during Reconstruction, European merchants flooded products into the United States after the British blockade, despite the country's economic troubles. America, which lost the trade benefits of being a British colony, gained many other economic benefits after independence. While they lost the lucrative trade routes of the British West Indies, America gained the ability to trade directly with the European mainland. You see, before independence, a British law called the Navigation Acts held that colonial imports had to be bought from the British, and that colonial goods had to be sold to Britain and not to other European countries directly. After the Revolutionary War, however, these laws no longer applied to America, which opened prosperous trade lanes with the Spanish, the French, and the Dutch without having to go through Britain first. But following the Revolutionary War, at least one critical industry in the North was crushed. American shipbuilders lost a valuable client in the British, when the British outlawed the use of American ships to transport British goods. This action essentially gutted the American ship construction industry, which had grown dependent on the British as clients. Though other industries, such as that of tobacco and indigo, rocketed back to the pre-war levels, many relying on the British as the largest buyer. The quick resumption of international trade brought to light some of the deficient economic infrastructure in the young country. Specifically, the Articles of Confederation, which was a sort of proto-constitution, denied Congress the power to collect taxes or create unified trade agreements with foreign countries, and without the income from taxes and tariffs, the Articles made impotent the Congress who couldn't fund a national defense of American merchants on land or sea. Congress's inability to create a unified national tariff on foreign goods meant that it was up to the states to create tariffs. But this created a massive inefficiency in the realm of international trade. Here's why. Faced with an aggressive tariff in Boston, for example, importers could gravitate towards New York or Newport to find the greatest profit. Merchants were frustrated not knowing which ports had tariffs or not, and states were frustrated because their tariffs lost their effectiveness as merchants could just avoid them by bringing their goods to different ports. In the episode after this one, we'll dive deeper into the economic deficiencies of the Articles of Confederation and see how they fueled the creation of the Constitution. For now, though, the handling of the national war debt continued to vex Congress. However, in 1790, Alexander Hamilton proposed his Report on a National Bank as a solution to the debt problem. This report, which collected Hamilton's arguments in favor of the founding of a national bank, was widely accepted in the Senate, though ran into opposition from Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. Jefferson and Madison argued that Hamilton's interpretation of the Constitution gave far too much power to the federal government. Jeffersonian Republicans, not to be confused with the modern Republican Party, by the way, advocated for stronger state rights at the expense of the central government. But Jefferson, along with many in the South, feared that Hamilton's interpretation of the Constitution led to the federal government resembling that of a monarchy. Hamilton, though, a Federalist, represented many in the Northeast who wanted a strong central government to protect their business and banking interests. It's interesting, the country is less than 10 years old and it's already starting to show fissures along economic and political lines, a division that would fester until its catastrophic reckoning 80 years from now. Hamilton's report concluded that to solve the federal debt crisis, Congress needed to charter a national bank. To Jefferson's chagrin, Hamilton argued that the bank should be endowed with the exclusive power to issue currency and to handle the fiscal duties of the government. Though the debate between the Jeffersonian Republicans and the Hamiltonian Federalists was fierce, Hamilton, like Morris before him, succeeded in convincing Congress to charter the bank, and thus, in 1791, President Washington signed into existence the First Bank of the United States. Called the First Bank of the U.S., despite Robert Morris's attempt to launch a central bank back in 1782, Hamilton's bank's purpose was threefold. First, it was to assist the Treasury in the collection and payment of federal revenues and expenditures. Second, the bank was to provide a unified currency as well as a source of credit for the federal government. In other words, the bank printed money and made loans to the treasury when needed. The notes it issued were to be backed by specie held in the vaults and be redeemable on demand. To avoid the issue of the notes being valued differently in different geographic regions, Hamilton's bank opened branches in nine major cities. If you remember from the last episode, Robert Morris's central bank failed in part because he couldn't get people outside of Philadelphia to want to use his bank's notes, which caused the notes outside of Philadelphia to be valued below par. Hamilton was not going to make the same mistake. His bank had branches in cities like New York, Boston, Charleston, Savannah, New Orleans, and of course the bank's headquarters, Philadelphia. Having branches in cities spread out across the United States meant that notes could be redeemed for specie at any branch, helping to keep the value of the notes consistent across the country and keeping arbitrage to a minimum. The third and most audacious role of the central bank was to handle the federal government's mountain of war debt. In this, Hamilton's plan was nothing short of cunning. Now financial data in the 1780s is a little hit or miss. Murray Rothbard says that $600 million worth of federal certificates, aka federal debt notes, were in circulation after the Revolutionary War, which seems a little bit high. And James Shepard says that in 1787, just after the war, there was only $14 million worth of federal debt, which seems a little bit low. But in 1783, the US Department of Finance released their own report saying that the number was $43 million. God, how I love the 18th century. It's also unclear if those numbers include things like the federal debt certificates, or debt to foreign countries, or some other kind of debt security. Anyway, instead of giving you a questionable number, all sources agree that the national debt following the war was a ton. But what I do know is that following the formation of Hamilton's bank, Congress created securities which represented 80 million dollars worth of debt that the federal government had apparently accrued by 1789. And that these securities were issued to debt holders across the country. Following that, Hamilton's first bank of the US issued its own securities in a massive IPO. So this is about to get a little tricky, so let's make sure we're all on the same page. Right now, there are two types of securities in this story. One from Congress, which converted $80 million worth of debt from the various flavors of debt notes in existence into a shiny new unified security. And a second security issued from Hamilton's bank, which was just plain old stock certificates. Hamilton's plan was to have people who held the new debt securities trade their notes to the central bank in exchange for shares of the bank's stock. To incentivize this transaction, the central bank exchanged the equity shares below par for the debt securities. This means that if the bank's shares are worth, say, $10 per share, the bank would exchange those $10 shares of stock for just $9 of debt. In other words, debt holders could get a 10% discount on the bank stock if they traded it for the newly issued government debt securities. Debt holders saw the bank as a much more promising investment than the fiscally challenged central government, so they naturally preferred to hold bank stock over government debt. The bank, after all, appeared well-funded and had a profitable business model, and just simple demand for its shares would likely push up the value of the equity. Basically, Hamilton was offering for people to swap out national debt notes in exchange for equity shares in his bank. Now this is where Hamilton's genius comes into play. Once the debt holders were converted into equity holders, if they wanted to sell their shares they were free to do so, but to each other, and on a secondary market. In other words, if an investor was ready to free themselves of their bank stock, which they had just swapped for the national debt, they could sell their shares to a willing buyer on the market, which was to be another citizen, not the central bank or the federal government. In this way, the government could lower the national debt level, having gotten the people to pay each other off instead of the government having to pay them. After all, the only actual cash transaction of this whole process occurs at the end, when a stockholder sells their shares to another citizen. This was a win, win, win. The public could choose to convert their debt to equity at a discount and then sell their equity for cash from another citizen if they wanted to, so they were happy. The government gets to move all of that debt from the hands of the mercurial public into the hands of another government entity, which is much more pliant and easy to work with. The government wins extra because they don't have to pay out any cash to the debt holders. Remember, all they did was print up some new debt securities and swap them out for the old debt notes to unify all the debt holders. And the bank wins because it pays nothing for the debt. It just issued equity for it, which costs it nothing. In return, the bank receives a stable cash flow in the form of interest payments from the government. Ladies and gentlemen, Hamilton was a genius. Aside from handling the national debt, the bank had a further role to play as an early regulator of the banking sector. This was needed because with the advent of a steady fountain of credit which was the first bank of the US, state and local banks had begun to spring up throughout the country. When Hamilton first proposed the bill to create his bank, there were only three commercial banks in existence, one in New York, one in Boston, and one in Philadelphia, which, by the way, was the privatized remains of Robert Morris's Bank of North America. Realizing that three banks could not possibly provide enough credit, I mean loans, to the national economy, Hamilton proposed the first bank of the United States to act as a national lender. Hamilton argued that credit was an essential ingredient in the growth of any economy. His theory panned out, as by the end of the central bank's charter, there were 85 new state banks in existence, which meant more institutions could make loans and the nation's small money supply, which was a perennial thorn in the side of America's economy, could grow. With all of the new banks popping up, the central bank acted as the de facto regulatory agency, mostly regulating the specie reserve ratio of the private banks. You'll remember from the last episode that the specie reserve ratio was just the ratio of the amount of notes that the bank had in circulation, compared to the amount of specie that bank had in its vaults. Banks that printed too many notes ran the risk of quickly becoming insolvent if too many note holders suddenly wanted to redeem their notes for gold and silver. Hamilton's bank was constantly receiving the notes issued by other banks, which it would consequently redeem for specie from those issuing banks. Remember, up to this point private banks had been issuing currency, basically they had been printing dollars. But the regulatory function that Hamilton's banks served by bringing bundles of paper notes back to the issuing banks and requesting specie in exchange had the effect of verifying that the state and private banks maintained an adequate supply of specie in their vaults to back up all the notes they had outstanding. Now I know that I mentioned that the first bank of the US was granted a congressional monopoly on money printing, but the country still had several types of notes in circulation when the first bank came around. So it's these notes already in existence that I'm referring to that the central bank was bundling up and bringing back to the private banks and exchanging for gold and silver. The central bank operated between 1791 and 1811. From the outset, Congress had granted the bank a 20-year charter. Towards the end of its charter, the bank had won the support of most New Englanders and much of the business class, even some of its initial detractors including the Madison administration. Many of the old republicans in the south, however, continued to oppose the bank and believed hard money, the use of gold and silver coinage, was superior to paper. And in their corner, the Jeffersonian republicans pointed to the high inflation the country had experienced during the years of the central bank's lifetime. Due to the deluge of credit supplied by the central bank and from the numerous state banks now in existence, the price level rose 51% from 1791 to 1811, which was the lifetime of Hamilton's bank. When it came time for the first bank of the US's charter to be renewed in 1811, the proposal was defeated by a single vote in Congress. The Federalists, who represented the merchant class and the state banks and most believers in a strong central government, voted in favor of renewing the bank's charter, while the old Jeffersonian Republicans, mostly heralding from the South, argued that the central bank was unconstitutional, and narrowly defeated the bank's renewal, putting an end to the bank's operations. America's second experiment with the central bank is largely seen as a benefit to the economy. The chaotic melange of paper currencies issued by the state and local banks, combined with the widespread use of foreign coins, created an uncoordinated monetary system. In fact, in 1800, foreign coins comprised 80% of coins in circulation in the United States. The various notes and coins in circulation invariably led to Gresham's law continually weakening the monetary system. Gresham's law, you'll remember, comes into effect whenever there are two or more different currencies circulating within the same system. As the notes and coins fluctuate in value, Gresham's law meant that the inferior money would push other money out of circulation due to hoarding and international trade. If silver, for example, is gaining in value and the paper notes are rapidly inflating, and by that I mean losing value, then naturally you're more likely to hang on to your silver and pay for goods with your paper notes. Anyway, the various kinds of foreign coins in circulation, combined with the state bank notes and the central bank notes and the old federal government debt notes, ensured that Gresham's Law wreaked havoc on America's money supply, as the superior money would perennially vanish from circulation to be replaced by weaker and inflating currencies. The effects of Gresham's Law manifested as a shortage in the money supply. It was that shortage that Alexander Hamilton sought to allay by giving the First Bank of the United States a monopoly on money printing. And by bundling up the notes of other banks and exchanging them for gold and silver, the First Bank of the U.S. could gradually eliminate other currencies from circulation to be replaced by its own. Hamilton's dream of a unified and stable currency might have come to be if it wasn't for another policy of Hamilton's which betrayed his goal, that of bimetallic coinage. As the name suggests, bimetallic coinage is the use of two metals as currency at the same time. In 1791, Alexander Hamilton published his Report on the Establishment of a Mint, in which he argued the United States could solve the ongoing money shortage issue by having both gold and silver coins in circulation. Hamilton's report led to Congress passing the Coinage Act in 1792. This act codified the use of both gold and silver as legal tender and affixed a ratio of 15 to 1 between them. That is, Congress determined 15 grains of silver was equal in value to 1 grain of gold. Hopefully by now the Gresham's Law siren is blaring in your head. As increased mining in Mexico flooded the silver market with a fresh supply, the value of silver began to drop. Where 15 to 1 was the market ratio in the early 1790's, over time that ratio began to fluctuate. The Mexican silver gradually lowered the metal's market value to 15.75 grains of silver to 1 grain of gold. That meant that Americans could take their silver to the mint, which by law still had to exchange it at a ratio of 15 to 1, and convert that silver into gold at a discount. Gresham's law, hard at work in these days, gradually sent that gold overseas or hoarded it into American pockets. Now consider all of the Spanish silver dollars in circulation in the United States. Even though the Spanish coins circulated at face value, Americans made a practice of shaving, clipping, and debasing the old coins, whose nearest mint was in Latin America. This meant that the lighter, less desirable Spanish dollars began pushing American-made coins out of circulation. By the 1820s, gold coins in the United States had vanished, and American silver had wound its way down to the Caribbean. The use of bimetallism existed in some form all the way until the Civil War, at which point governments on both the north and south sides of the line embraced the unlimited revenue source of fiat paper currency. It's funny how wars can have that effect. Though it sounds chaotic, the use of hard metals as a currency did have a stabilizing effect on prices, not unlike how prices stabilized in the 1760s after Britain outlawed the use of paper in the colonies. On one half of the monetary arena, coins, even foreign ones, acted to anchor prices, which helped to offset the goings-on of the other half of that arena, that of inflationary paper money. To wrap this episode up, on the heels of the Revolutionary War, the United States quickly adopted the Articles of Confederation as an ad hoc agreement that defined the powers of Congress. That is, the Articles granted substantial powers to the states and left the Congress without any real economic teeth. However, in the chaotic years following the war, the Articles had to suffice though what they left to be desired fueled the creation of the Constitution six years later in 1787. Shortly after the Constitution's ratification, Hamilton launched the country's second attempt at a national bank in 1791. Through this, he attempted to rectify the chronic shortage of money by increasing the sources of credit, which worked, and introducing bimetallic coinage, which did not. Including foreign coinage in circulation at the time, the many types of currencies in the U.S. induced Gresham's Law with a vengeance, which decreased the money supply and left only those currencies of the least value in the U.S. The central bank, however, and all of the private banks it helped to spawn, ultimately did increase the money supply, as shown by the inflation which prevailed during the lifetime of the bank. Through this scheme with his national bank, Hamilton also craftily began to take bites out of the national debt, which had grown to perhaps $80 million by 1789, but dropped to $48 million by 1811, according to modern estimates of the national debt by the U.S. Treasury. Also in the 1780s, international trade roared back to pre-war levels, as wartime blockades finally gave way to the pent-up demand for goods, which pressured Congress to concoct a national stance on tariffs. The period following the war was still economically chaotic. A massive national war debt, massive levels of state debt, no cohesive stance on foreign trade, and the haphazard monetary system were all economic factors for the Constitutional Convention, which we'll cover in the next episode. Thanks for listening to this episode of the History of U.S. Economics podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and check out the website, useconpodcast.com. Also, follow the show on Twitter, at U.S. Econ Podcast.